listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Today's scripture reading is selected verses from Lamentations chapter 1. If you're following along in the Pew Bibles, it's pages 8, 14, and 15. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire. Into my bones he made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate for the enemy has prevailed. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. Yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. This is the word of the Lord. It was not exactly what I was expecting uh, as a fairly new senior pastor. Uh, After uh, we had been at First E Free in one part of St. Louis County for about four years, I served in adult ministry and education discipleship, I uh, agreed to serve as senior pastor for a different congregation in another part of St. Louis. And 
not far up the road from this church, there was a funeral home that kind of had a connection to the church through some people there, and uh, one of the directors there asked if I would be able to be kind of on call for any people that came to the funeral home, didn't have a pastor or a church home. I thought, sure, that's, that's a great way to connect in the community and, and reach people in a moment of suffering and loss. But I wasn't prepared for this. There was a family, uh, grandfather had passed away, not, you know, unexpectedly, he lived a good, full, long life, uh, met with the family, planned out the service, memorials and eulogies and opportunities to remember and celebrate, and I had an opportunity to share scripture and uh, preach the hope of Jesus' victory over death uh, in the face of our own mortality. And everything went fine until we got to the cemetery and the short committal service. At the end of it, one of this man's grandsons uh, was still just clinging to the casket, uh, like hugging it and weeping uncontrollably, really just wailing, a kind of sorrow and expression of loss that we don't hear or see maybe very often. And I just felt so much this tension of what do you say to that kind of grief? How do you respond to that? What, what can you offer? What can you say to someone who's obviously lost a relationship that was so meaningful to them and, and yet I've shared the gospel and in conversations with them I, I didn't have any indication that they were followers of Jesus and so maybe there really wasn't much hope, and that was what drew out this just gut-wrenching cry of agony and loss and hopelessness. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that. Hopefully you've, you've never felt anything that profoundly hopeless and painful but I'm betting that most of you have had really profound losses, the loss of a loved one, maybe some really painful things in your life, abuse or uh, divorce, a loss of a really meaningful relationship, a fatal diagnosis, a terminal illness. We've also probably all struggled with the things that are just kind of common to all of us living life in a broken world, difficult relationships and uh, financial stresses and the challenges of trying to make everything fit on the calendar and getting together with family at the holidays and uh, all those discussions that you don't want to have and uh, just the, the stress and the tension and, and the ache of things not being the way we want them to be or the way they ought to be in this world. And some of us, some of you, have maybe experienced even much more profound sorrow than any of those things. Uh, some of you, I think, have even you know, come from countries where being a Christian was literally dangerous and life-threatening. Some of you have suffered torture, persecution, your families have rejected you because of your faith in Christ. Some of you have suffered terribly and struggled even to get to this country and, 
and try to have some of the opportunity and freedom and, and peace that you hope to find here. And maybe all of us have struggled at times to know how to process those things in our own lives or what to say into the lives of others who are going through some of those things. The fascinating verse in the book of Proverbs it says, wisdom resides in the house of mourning. It's not a message we hear very often and not one that doesn't maybe resonate with us right away because I think we all sort of naturally feel and our world tells us that, you know, the wise thing to do is seek pleasure, seek happiness, seek joy, don't think about bad things. We don't like to talk about death and suffering. And yet the Bible is saying there's wisdom in going into a house of mourning. There are things that we learn in sorrow, in loss, in lament that we don't learn otherwise. God speaks to us maybe uniquely through those experiences and maybe into other people's lives through his word and through the suffering that we experience. It's, it's maybe it's a little like, if any of you are familiar with the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, long slabs of black granite with thousands of names inscribed on them. It's serious, it's somber, it calls us to pause and listen and reflect and not miss the lesson. And that's kind of what the Book of Lamentations is doing. If you haven't already, you could go ahead and pull up your uh, smartphone or iPad or whatever, your faith app will have Lamentations 1 up or you can turn in your Lamentations journal or the black Bible in the seat underneath in front of you. This book was written right around 586 BC in the context of the city of Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah being taken over and essentially destroyed by the Babylonians. Now, after the, the golden years of King David and King Solomon, the, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of Israel, broke away and one evil king after another and the warnings of the prophets were ignored and finally they were conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BC, which should have been a warning to the kingdom of Judah in the south. And there were some kings that were reformers and, and tried to bring the country back to God, but overall it was still the same downward spiral into spiritual adultery and idolatry and immorality and injustice and corruption. And so God sends the Babylonians of all people to surround Jerusalem, besiege the city, and then finally in 586 B.C., to break through the city gates. They sack God's city, tear down the temple, smash the walls, slaughter the inhabitants. The few that are left, most of them are taken off into exile. And the few remaining survivors, like the author of this letter, whom the church has traditionally assumed to be Jeremiah, are left trying to make sense of it all. Maybe the closest thing in our national experience would be the 9-11 attacks. And those of you who remember it. A, a scene of fear and destruction and smoke and uncertainty and wailing and chaos. Except in 
Jerusalem's case, it was also combined with complete military loss, their country overrun by the enemy, driven into exile and slavery. And worse than all of that, God's temple is torn down. They were God's own covenant people. And now they're suffering in the most painful, profound, and brutal ways imaginable. And Lamentations is an attempt to help God's people process through this tragedy. And it becomes a model for us for what God would say into our lives and how we find voice in the tragedies and sorrows that come into our lives. One commentator says, it's best understood as the script of a liturgy intended as a therapeutic ritual. It was for the survivors of the catastrophe of 586 BC who were left behind in the rubble. And just like with every sorrow and every loss, there's a history behind these laments which is encouraging for us because it reminds us that the sorrows and the pains and the losses that we experience are not meaningless. They're not random. They don't come from nowhere. They're part of our story. And that means there can be meaning in them if we listen to them, if we're willing to go into this house of mourning to find wisdom. There's an important set of themes that run through this book that we're going to see, one of which we're really going to dive into this morning, and that's grief. There's just a profound, extended expression and exploration of loss and brokenness that we don't often do a good job demonstrating as Americans, as Westerners, as evangelicals. There's grief, there's guilt also. That comes up in the first chapter too as well. And did you notice that in verse 5? The Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. And again, talking about her uncleanness. Uh, Judah sinned grievously in verse 8. And, and even this female personification, the the lady Jerusalem in verse 18, the Lord is in the right for I have rebelled against his word. That we're going to explore some more as we get further into the book. This idea of guilt that all the brokenness, all the sorrow, all the pain that we experience in some way is at least indirectly connected to our rebellion against God. And then grievance. You know, we talk about anger as part of the healing process through grief, and there's a cry that comes through this book over and over for God to do justice. There's an acknowledgement that I am wrong and the Lord is punishing me, but look at the end of chapter 1. In verse 21, you have brought the day you announced Now let them, let the invaders be like I am. Let their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me. God, if if I was guilty and deserved this punishment and this suffering that you brought on your people, surely they did more than was necessary. God, do justice. 
And lament gives us the words to cry out to God for justice. And then the last little observation before we dig into the text. Chapters 1 and 2 and 4 are acrostics in nature, uh, which if you're a puzzle geek like me is kind of cool. What that means is each of these verses starts with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There's 22 of those stanzas in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 4, and they each begin with, we would say, A, B, C, D, E. There's an intentionality to that that's really meaningful. Just like the alphabet has a beginning and an end, the writer is using that structure to to show how comprehensive this loss and brokenness and pain is, but there's an end to it. It's not chaotic, it's not limitless, it doesn't go on forever. Just like you go from A and eventually get to Z and list all the sorrow, you do eventually get to Z. And that gives us some hope. So those are the themes that are going to come up again and again in this book. And what I want us to really look at today is what this chapter one is saying to us. And the first is this, we really need to learn how to lament. We need to learn how to lament. I think most of us as Christians are unfamiliar, maybe even uncomfortable with lament, with these scenes of what seem like just exaggerated grief. Look back in verse 12, kind of the center of this chapter. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow, which the Lord has inflicted on me in the day of his fierce anger. Look, look at this. Don't skip past it. I I don't know about you, but uh, I think for uh, me and for maybe... um, A lot of guys growing up in our American culture, we were taught that you don't cry, you don't show weakness, you got to keep it together, and that's what it means to be a man. And even if you weren't a guy, maybe some of you women even grew up in a household where it's just, that's not what we do. Come on, get it together. That is not what the Bible is telling us. That is not what Lamentations is saying. You know, there are times uh, where I've stepped into some of the the pain and, and the grief of other people, and maybe if you're like me, you feel a discomfort there. Because, at least for me, maybe for many of you, there's this sense like I... You know, I, I, I want to help this person. I want them to not be unhappy. So what do I say? How do I fix this? And then sometimes that can lead to you know, sort of quick, trite answers that are not really helpful. Like, uh, you know, God has a wonderful plan, and I'm sure he's going to bring good out of this, uh, which may be true, but it may not be what that person needs right then either. Or sometimes it just, it feels so uncomfortable, the, the rawness of what someone is experiencing in grief or loss that we even become like physically uncomfortable. I just, uh, I'll pray for you and, you know, we get out of there as quickly as we can. Or, you know, we sort of 
want to shift the conversation to something else or get to a quick resolution of it. And lament is just not familiar terrain for most of us. We don't know how to express it and we don't know what to do with it when we're around people who are grieving. We're a lot more comfortable with happy songs of joy and victory, which is totally understandable, right? I mean, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Jesus has won the victory for us. All true. And yet, if we rush to get to that answer without going through the process of really acknowledging and owning and expressing the pain and the loss, then the celebration ends up becoming kind of shallow. Do you ever find that? It can be hard for people who are really struggling with profound loss to come into a worship service if there's no acknowledgement of sorrow and brokenness and ache because we just don't do that well as Americans. We're always looking for the happy ending. Going through sorrow without embracing this God-given process of lamenting can short-circuit the grieving process that God wants to take us through. One commentator said on this book, what helps with healing is tears, talk, and time. And we're not great at maybe any of those for the most part. There's, there's a Yiddish proverb that I, I love how it pulls it together. It says, tears are the soap of the soul. Sadness has to do its work to bring about cleansing and healing. But we don't want to cry and, and we want to run past that too much of the time. And we don't provide much space for grief. I mean, some of us, some of you who are older, remember you used to wear a black armband on your suit jacket when you were mourning someone, maybe for months back when we wore suit jackets. Uh, maybe for months at a time, you, you might have the drapes drawn in the house or black hanging inside to let people know, hey, I'm grieving, and that could last months or up to a year. We don't really have much space for mourning, even in our funeral services. Yes, of course, the message of the gospel is victory over death. But the victory is more beautiful when we understand and step into the depth of the loss. Because I think deep down we really long to be able to bring those things to the surface. And talk about them and, and deal with them. And that's what this book of Lamentations is intended to do to help you, to give you permission to vocalize that pain as you move forward, to trust and worship and hope in God. Lament is how we bring our sorrows to God, and without lament, we don't know how to process the losses, and we don't know how to help people. Lament is what gives us the form and the words to vocalize the deep pain that we've gone through. So Lamentations is about helping connect us in the tension of a world or a life that has gone bad and a God who is good. 
That's what this book does. The, the Hebrew title of the book even comes from this first word in chapter one, how. Not like asking for an answer, but this expression of how is this possible? How did this happen? What is God doing? That's the cry of lament. So maybe what we do with this is give people permission to lament. Encourage them to lament. Don't don't tell people, oh, come on, it's no big deal, get over it. Or, you know, sometimes we try and maybe make people, I don't know, feel better by telling them some worse thing that we experienced. That's the opposite of helping people lament. And that means we also still then have to take the risk ourselves to find maybe one or two or three people that we can be honest in this way about. People who are safe to share the pain and the questions and the wrestling and the doubt that life has brought up. Be willing to lament the brokenness in our lives and in the world. Man, one of the things that makes this hard is we all know we live in such a cynical age, right? And we just get used to the world being broken and we just take corruption and dishonesty and ugliness and violence for granted. What if we allowed God to help us actually lament those things? To weep godly tears of sorrow over the brokenness in relationships and communities and institutions and systems and policies and, and all of it. One of the things that that can do is help voice prayers for people who are so surrounded by grief that they can't even pray themselves. Maybe you've been there or been there with a friend. It's just so heavy and hard. You don't even know how to pray or you don't even want to pray. We need to be the kind of people that can pray for and on behalf of one another to bear the burden of walking into the pain with them to pray the lament that they can't even vocalize. One famous pastor said years ago, I read the news so I know how to pray. What if we decided I'm gonna read the news so I know how to lament? That I would let the brokenness and the need of this world touch my heart. Not to judge, not to get angry, not to condemn, not to become self-righteous, but to pray and to weep. There are people suffering all around us, and we need one another. So how do we do that? Okay, quickly. Secondly, then, we acknowledge the loss. We learn how to lament, and we need to acknowledge the losses, to own them, to define them from A to Z, maybe, because that's what Jeremiah or whoever this prophetic eyewitness is doing here. There's a series, in fact, of almost kind of 
flashbacks to the good old days, how things used to be before all this calamity hit. Jerusalem remembers, in verse 7, in the days of her affliction and wandering, all the precious things that were hers from days of old, when her people fell into the hand of her foe. And, and then, honestly, it goes on to kind of a more extended description of some of the ways that that sin worked itself out with images that are maybe even a little more graphic than I'm comfortable reading in a worship service. But go back even to, to verse 1. How like a widow the city has become. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. The, the people of God have lost their position, lost their importance. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. She's gone into exile. She dwells among the nations in verse 3, but finds no resting place. Have you ever been so weighed down with grief and sorrow that you, you couldn't sleep at night? Your gut was just churning inside you. This, these people have lost rest. They've lost peace. They're just defined by anxiety and grief. Verse 5, her foes have become the head and her enemies prosper. God's people have been humbled and humiliated, dragged down in the dust. Her children have gone away and become captives before the foe. Think about that. Your, your family has been ripped apart. Your children are taken away. That, that's not even just a, a deep family connection. Your hope for the future, your hope of seeing generations come up after you, taken away. Verse 7, Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and, and wandering, this imagery of tears and wandering. It's almost like, you know, this, this character just wandering around, wringing her hands and tears streaming down her face and just aimlessly, not even able to know where she's going. All the people collapse in hunger as they search for bread. Economic disaster starvation right in front of them. I mean, it, they have lost everything. And, and the, the Jeremiah here is listing it out as part of this complaint. When Amelia and I were in seminary, we had a middle-aged pastoral couple came uh, to speak at an evening event talking about having lost uh, an 18-year-old son in a tragic accident and what that did to their hearts and their lives and their faith. It, it, it was a loss, obviously, of this child in their life. It was a loss of hope for the future and, and all that they had you know, wanted to look forward to. What is this young man going to become? How is God going to use him? Will grandchildren, you know, will we have grandchildren come out of this? All of that is ripped away. Even the memories of the past are lost now because they're all tainted by the current reality of their son no longer being there, and all they have left are these memories. And they even struggled with their faith and talked about how this made them question, is there a God who is good and who is for us? In, in the middle of this? 
And Amelia and I were just so profoundly moved at their willingness to be vulnerable in front of their own congregation, in, in front of a group of seminary students about that kind of struggle and pain and sorrow. We just don't do that. We don't see that very often. Maybe for some of you, there's stuff inside that you really have never acknowledged. You've just never named it, never owned it, and, and you try and stuff it down, you try and ignore it, you try and numb it, and it leaks out in anger or bitterness or cynicism or despair. You need to own it. You need to name it. You need to acknowledge the loss. And we need to be people who can encourage one another to do that and not be scared of the pain or feel like we have to fix it or have an answer. We mostly just need to be heard. And we can do that for one another. And then enter into the loneliness. We need to acknowledge the loss and enter into the loneliness. Did you hear that loneliness and all the connections that have been taken away? Uh, there's a famous line from a poem several decades ago, laugh and the world laughs with you. Weep and you weep alone. And that's what God's people are experiencing here. How lonely, in verse 1, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. It was packed and, and now there's a scattered handful left. Friendships have been ripped away. She weeps bitterly in the night in verse 2 with no one to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her and become her enemies. The people that I trusted are the ones who stabbed me in the back. She's gone into exile. Her pursuers have overtaken her. And even more than that, look in verse 4. The the roads to Zion more. None come to the festival. Her gates are desolate. The priests groan. There's no worship. There's no worship community. There's no faith. There's no word from the Lord. There's no message to God. There's no message from God. Worst of all is the loneliness that we often feel in, in deep pain and sorrow in our relationship with God that we may pray and pray and pray and feel like the prayers are going no higher than the ceiling. Can we be willing to enter into that with one another, for one another? Look at how this is personified in verse 16. My comforter is far from me. There's no one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate. Zion stretches out her hands, but there's none to comfort her. What if we were the ones who were willing to step into that lament for one another and enter into the loneliness and, and to be on the lookout for people who are grieving and alone 
to be willing to be the comforters. One of the things that that pastoral couple in seminary mentioned is that when they raised those questions, when they were honest with people in their church, they had people leave. They had people question, should you even be a pastor if you're wrestling with this stuff? Their friends, some of them turned away from them. And yet there were some who didn't. There were comforters who came alongside and were willing to enter into the loneliness and say, I will sit with you. Can we do that for one another? That's part of the message of this story. We're all uncomfortable around suffering, especially suffering that we can't fix. And especially when it seems like there's no clear answer from God at all. One of the interesting things that commentators have observed about this book is there are basically three voices or three characters that go through it. And we heard two of them today. One is sort of the, the prophet narrator who is sort of the shepherd, the spiritual mentor who is also a member that has gone through this tragedy with the community, but is also trying to lead them through it. And then we heard in the end of chapter two, this personification of Lady Jerusalem, like a widow whose husband and children are gone. And then towards the end of the book, the, the congregation of God's people are gonna be encouraged to, to lift up their prayers to God. But there's a fourth voice that does not show up in this book. There's no voice from Yahweh. There's no word from God here. And, and that can be the hardest silence of all. It's not our job to have the answers. It's not our job to fix it. But I think it is our job to be willing to step into the loneliness. To give people the gift of being heard. Of not being left to themselves. To have people who won't walk away in embarrassment or, you know, it's awkward or it's uncomfortable. But to just, like Job's friends when they got it right for like the first week, when they just sat in the dust in the middle of his distress and didn't say anything. Just the ministry of being present with one another. There's actually a word of hope in this imagery of Jerusalem like a widow that leads us to the last thing that we close with, and, and that's the lament that leads us to remember and hope. What does God say about widows in the Bible? You know, he cares for widows. He protects widows. He looks out for widows. He feeds a starving widow by sending his prophet with a miraculous provision of food. Jesus stops this widow in the middle of a funeral procession to bring her son back to life. God cares for widows. Even in this case, when it's his own people who have made themselves widows by their disobedience. 
yes, these people have been separated from God by their sin, but it's not a separation that lasts forever, and it, it points us ultimately to the hope of Christ. I, I was thinking about that um, in, in verse 12 again. Look back at those words. Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow. In his Messiah, Handel puts these words in the mouth of Christ on the cross. Is there anyone who has suffered like Jesus suffered on the cross? The one who suffered undeservingly and took our sin on himself? I was thinking about that in our service this last week on Ash Wednesday. Uh, this kind of unique gathering where we take ashes and we remind ourselves and each other we are formed from the ash and to ash we will return. Those words really caught in my mouth as my wife Amelia came up to have me put ashes on her forehead. And I had to be confronted with the reality of her mortality. And it just hit me in a deep way that one of us is going to lay the other in the grave one day. And I was already feeling some of that lament of the brokenness of this world and how wrong death is. And at the same time, what a glorious hope we have that Jesus has entered into the ash and the dust and the sin to take it on himself and fight and win for us. So that in the lament and in the grief and in the sorrow, we are not hopeless. We have a Savior who has taken it and defeated it. We have a Savior who knows what it is to suffer because no one has suffered like he suffered. You are not alone. You have a Savior who is at work and who is also a redeemer who comes to rescue and to bring hope and healing in the middle of the sorrow. And that's what we have to remind each other of and point each other towards. As we learn to lament, as we acknowledge the loss, as we enter into the loneliness with one another, we also remember and we hope for each other and with each other. Can we do that this season as we go through this book, as we learn how to lament? Let's do that in the hope of Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for this hard, painful word, a memorial, a remembrance of sorrow and loss and brokenness that gives us a language and gives us permission to grieve and name the loss and enter into the loneliness and to do that for one another to bring us to hope. Father, help us to hope in you and help us to point each other in the middle of our losses, in the middle of the loneliness. Thank you that Jesus has taken it on himself so that we are never ultimately abandoned we are never without hope. I pray with gratitude in Jesus' name. Amen.